welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. Today we continue the series we began last week. If you remember, last week we shared the first half of Bishop Barron's keynote talk from the 2020 Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. The talk is titled, The Real Presence of the Eucharist, and Bishop Barron delivered that talk in response to this distressing Pew Research Center study, which found that only 30% of church-going Catholics believe what the church teaches about the Eucharist, namely that Christ is really present in the species of bread and wine that have been transformed into his own body and blood. Last week, we looked at the biblical basis for this doctrine, namely John chapter 6, and we also took a tour through what the church fathers had to say about it. In the second half of the talk, we're going to look at what St. Thomas Aquinas, that great doctor of the church, taught about the Eucharist and why his ideas and his formulations are still so helpful today. So if you missed the first half, you probably want to go back and listen to that, but if you've already listened to it, then get ready, sit back, and enjoy the second half of Bishop Barron's excellent talk on the real presence of the Eucharist. Enjoy. Okay, so first century, John 6, second to fifth century, those fathers I looked at, 11th century, the church says no to Berengarius. Now let's go two centuries after that, to the 13th century, and to my great intellectual hero, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, we can overstate Thomas's importance. He's, he's one voice among many, not more than that. Nevertheless, he's called by the church the doctor communis, the common doctor, like the doctor we all have in common, because there's something about the, the depth and breadth of Thomas's reflection that is of permanent importance in the life of the church. And so it's important for us to pause and look at Thomas's text on the Eucharist. First, though, maybe a word about his personal relationship to the Eucharist, which was profound and intense. They say Thomas would typically um, celebrate two masses a day. So the first one he'd preside at it. The second one his assistant uh, presided and Thomas assisted. But they say that he, he hardly ever got through mass without shedding copious tears. Now you're not gonna sense that from Thomas's text that can seem very dry and scholastic, right? But he had this vividly personal relationship to the Eucharist. I've always loved this, his assistant at his canonization proceedings, some decades after his death, said that Thomas benefited far more from prayer than from study when it came to writing his theology. And he said that Thomas would frequently go into a chapel and he would rest his head against the tabernacle, begging for inspiration. And then of course, I took my motto as a bishop from this, the famous scene toward the end of his life. Thomas had just written the great treatise on the Eucharist from the Summa. And he felt, even though it's, it's a masterpiece, Thomas felt it's not done justice to this great sacrament. And so he dramatically places that text, the text about the Eucharist, at the foot of the cross. And if you go to Naples, they have his cell still there, and they have the icon they think that he put the text in front of. And then the wonderful story is that a voice came from the cross. Toma bene scripsisti de me. Thomas, you've written well of me. 
Jesus speaking Latin, of course, to Thomas Aquinas. Uh, <laughs> Thomas, you've written well of me. What would you have as a reward? And then what he responded to is what I took as my motto as a bishop, non nisi te domine. I'll have nothing except you, Lord. And that's Thomas's relationship to the Eucharistic Christ. Okay. If you're looking for this treatise, it's questions 73 through 83 of the third part of the Summa of Aquinas. So you know, the, the first part of the Summa is about God and creation. The second part is about the human being and our moral life. And the third part is about the incarnation, Christ, and the sacraments. So Thomas never finished that third part. One of the last things he wrote were these questions on the Eucharist, 73 through 83. I'm going to look just at two places in it for our purposes. Something from question 73 and something from question 75. Okay. In one of the articles in question 73, Thomas asks, is the Eucharist a sacrament? And in his development of his answer, he says some wonderful things. First of all, he says, the Eucharist is best understood as alimentum spirituale. That means spiritual food. Now remember, padre, per favore. Or remember that iconic photo of, of Bishop Cacanus when the people are reaching through the fence at the border at Mass. They're reaching through like they, they need this for life. So Thomas says the Eucharist is, is best understood as alimentum spirituale. It's spiritual food. And he says this, just as baptism is generatio, it's the generation of spiritual life, as confirmation is augmentum, that means growth in the spiritual life, so the Eucharist is alimentum, food for the journey. Necessary? Uh-huh. Last time I checked, food is necessary for physical life. So this food, necessary for the life of the soul. I had the experience many years ago uh, with a friend. I, I did a, a bike trip from Paris to Rome. I was younger in those days. Um, and we would do like 70 or 80 miles a day. And on that trip, I had my first experience of what they call hitting the wall. I'd read about it, but never experienced it. That's when you're, you're going, and then it's not like you're just getting tired. It's like you can't go on. You're so depleted that you, you, you can't move. And that happened to me somewhere in the south of France. And I, I just had to stop until we always had these big French baguettes in the, in the back of the bike there. And I ate one of those and drank water and then was able to go on. And that's always stayed vividly in my mind. Alimentum, food for the body, necessary. So, alimentum spirituale, necessary. Padre, per favore for the life of the soul. His next observation, I think also good for catechists and for teachers as you present the Eucharist. He says, the Eucharist has three names depending upon its relationship to the dimensions of time. If we look back in time, the Eucharist is called sacrificium, sacrifice, because it embodies the sacrifice of the cross. You look around the present time, the Eucharist is called communio, because right now it's a communion with Christ and with each other, members of the mystical body of Christ. 
If we look to the future, the Eucharist is called viaticum because it's food that will take us on our final journey into heaven. And then the great name, he says, is indeed Eucharistia, thanksgiving. Why? Because that's the whole life of heaven. When we are totally Christified in heaven, all we will do is give thanks and praise. So sacrifice, communion, viaticum, Eucharist, these great names, beautiful stuff. I love this. Is it convenient, Thomas asked. It's a favorite word of his, by the way. It just means fitting. Is it fitting that Jesus established the Eucharist? His answer, of course, is yes. Just as the emperor, he says, leaves behind his imago in statues and on coins to remind the people of his presence even when he's absent, so Jesus, now in heaven, in a way absent from us, leaves behind his great imago, his great image, this great sign of his presence. I love this, too. And I try to think of it, actually, whenever I say Mass. Thomas says, what someone says and does in the ultimate moments of his or her life is of tremendous power and significance. Let's say you're gathering with someone and, and they, they know they're going to be executed the next day. And you're gathering with this beloved friend who's, who's facing death. Wouldn't you find written in your heart whatever that friend did and said that night? So, Aquinas says, we attend to everything Jesus said and did. But with a very special, intense attention. We watch what he did and said the night before he died, leaving us this imago of himself. Beautiful stuff. Now, just a glance at question 75. And in some ways here, everybody, we're coming to the heart of the matter. John 6, through the fathers, the anti-Berengarian position. Now, Thomas Aquinas, this great theological mind, expressing the church's faith about the Eucharist. Here's the question he poses. Whether in this sacrament the body of Christ is according to truth or only according to figure or as in a sign. It's very important now. Think Berengarius, but we'll go right back to John 6 and look forward to Flannery O'Connor. If it's only a symbol, I say to hell with it. Listen to Aquinas again. Whether in this sacrament the body of Christ is there he says, secundum veritatem, according to truth, or only according to figure, or as in a sign. His answer, of course, is he's there, secundum veritatem. He's there according to truth. How do we explain it? Well, here Thomas uses language that I think we shouldn't run from. I think we should love and reverence. He's borrowing it, but he's adapting it like crazy, but borrowing it from the Aristotelian philosophy of his time. Thomas speaks here of transubstantiation. I don't know if you have any Simpsons fans here. There's a famous Simpsons episode where Homer becomes a Catholic briefly. And remember, he's in, he's in catechism class, 
and he's written on his arm, like for the cheat sheet, transubstantiation. I've always appreciated that. He also wrote, by the way, God, good, devil, bad. It just, he was clear on the basics, you know. But he also had transubstantiation. Okay, what's substance? Can I just propose, I think, an altogether valid, but maybe somewhat easier way to understand this distinction? Substance is the deepest and core reality of something. When I speak of substance, I mean the deepest and core reality of something. What something is, that's the substantia, right? What stands under. Now, what does it stand under? It stands under what Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas call accidents. Just a fancy way of saying appearances. That's why later we'll speak of the species. Same thing, right? Species is like the word spectacle. It means what you see. So Thomas says, in the great act of consecration, the substance of the bread and wine, that is to say, their deepest and core reality, change into the body and the blood of Jesus. Even as the appearances, accidents, species of the bread and wine remain. So what are we talking about after the consecration? Not of bread and wine. We made a grammatical error, a logical error, if we refer to them that way. Because their core reality has changed, even as their appearances remain unchanged. That's transubstantiation. What I'm hoping we can all see here is that this is not some alien imposition, but rather it's an attempt to articulate what was sensed from John 6 on, the density and reality of what we're talking about. Here, here's a quick thing I'm, I'm going to add here. Uh, Thomas asked the question, well, isn't there deception involved in the Eucharist? And wouldn't this be unworthy of God to be deceiving us? You say, well, heck, it looks like bread and wine. It tastes like bread and wine and reacts like bread and wine. So isn't God deceiving us here? His answer is no, there's no deception whatsoever. Because the senses indeed take in what's there. The accidents, the species, the senses are seeing correctly what's there. But the senses have to be informed by a judgment shaped by faith. Now, I'll get to some of this at the very end of my talk. I'll try to explain how we can make sense of this. But the point is the senses aren't deceived. Sometimes in my internet ministry, when this issue comes up, skeptics of, of the Catholic position will say, look, just take the Eucharistic, take the host, and put it under a microscope and, and see what you find out. I mean, has it changed into the, into, um, the flesh of a human being? Well, anything that can be observed empirically is not what we're talking about here. That's the level of the accidental or the, of the appearance level. The changes happen at the level of substance, transubstantiation. You know, here's another image, maybe. Think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Seeing the risen Jesus, taking him in, listening to him, Indeed, led by him, revealing they know all the data about him. 
No, he's a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and loved by the people. The elders turned against him. He was crucified. Some say he rose from the dead. They're seeing everything, but they're not getting it. They're, they're seeing what's there to be seen, but they're not getting to the core reality of who he is. It's only, and of course, how wonderful, how wonderful that it's in the breaking of the bread that they get, they see who he is. Um, I can't let a talk go by without quoting Bob Dylan. Um, <laughs> Bob Dylan said, all he believes are his eyes, and his eyes, they just tell him lies. Um, true sometimes? If all we believe are our eyes, it's all we take in of reality, the, the species, the appearance level, often we don't get the core reality. The Eucharist operates there. Here's one too, any Bob Dylan fans, it's a super obscure song by Bob Dylan, but contains this little line. I never could learn to drink that blood and call it wine. Think about that one for a second. Okay. John 6, church fathers, the church saying no to Berengarius. Thomas Aquinas giving a kind of magisterial expression with his language of transubstantiation. Now go forward three more centuries to the 16th century. The great century now of the Protestant Catholic debates. Right? Martin Luther never liked uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation didn't like Thomas Aquinas' approach to it. Luther said, the bread and wine are, are bread and wine after the consecration. But the presence of Christ has been somehow added to them. This is called more technically the impanation or companation theory. This means in the bread or with the bread, right? That somehow along with the bread has come the presence of Jesus. That's why more conservative Lutherans to this day will say, oh no, we, we believe in the real presence. They don't believe in transubstantiation. Do you know um, in the song, it's not one of my favorite songs, but in um, Gather Us In, there's a perfectly Lutheran uh, Eucharistic theology when the line says, the bread that is you. Remember that line? We're addressing the Lord and we say, the bread that is you. But see, that's a Lutheran sensibility. But see, Catholics no, no, we balk at that. It's not bread. It's changed. It's not bread to which something has been added. A significance has been added. There's been a change at the most fundamental level. Think here, along with Luther, of uh, Ulrich Zwingli, one of the great uh, reforming figures. Zwingli goes right back to Berengarius, it seems to me. Zwingli says, look, we're dealing with, with uh, bread and wine, which take on a symbolic significance. And I think if you look at many of the Protestant churches to this day, they'd follow more of that Zwinglian, Berengarian uh, approach to it. So the Council of Trent gathers to address the issues raised by the reformers. And can I make a little um, fervorino in favor of the Council of Trent? Um, when I was coming of age, you know, Vatican II was the cool council and Trent was kind of the uncool council. Um, that's not helpful. I, I, spent many years teaching the Council of Trent when I was in the seminary work. And it's this marvelous text on original sin, justification, the sacraments, the Eucharist. And these are people who read the reformers very carefully. They knew Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the other reformers, and they really engaged them creatively. So don't, don't um, turn away from Trent. 
Well, Trent gives us a very appointed teaching on the Eucharist, and it's summed up in what they call 11 canons. I'm just going to look at, at two of them with you. So these canons are kind of summary statements of the teaching of Trent on the Eucharist. Here's canon one. If anyone were to deny that the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ is contained vere realiter et substantialiter, truly, really, and substantially in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, but is there only in sign or figure, let him be condemned. Now, I know we're post-Vatican II, we don't do things like let him be condemned, but uh, get to the heart of the teaching. I'll, I'll put it in positive terms. We are to say as Catholics that the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ is contained truly, vere, really, realiter, et substantially, substantialiter, in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, and is not only in sign or figure. Now, Flannery O'Connor was saying exactly that, right? If it's only a sign or figure, that's not what we're talking about. Real, true, and substantial. Here's Canon 2. If anyone were to say that in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of the bread and wine remains with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and would deny the marvelous and unique conversion of the entire substance of the bread into the body and of the entire substance of the wine into the blood, the species of bread and wine nevertheless remaining, a conversion that the Catholic Church most aptly calls transubstantiation, anathemistic. Let him be condemned. So again, this should be familiar from Thomas Aquinas. I'll state it positively. Catholics must hold that the entire substance of the bread and wine are changed. They don't remain. You see, what are they going after here but Luther's impanation or companation theory? As though something is added to the bread and wine. No, the bread and wine are no longer there substantially. They've been changed. And it's, Trent says, optissime. It's most aptly called transubstantiation, this change. Now, mind you, can we come up with another word for it? Yeah, sure. If some very clever theologian can find a way to express this idea, okay. But Trent says, optissime, most aptly it's called transubstantiation. Okay? Now, one more step in this little historical survey, and then I'll get to just an attempt to understand what this is about. First century, John 6, 2 to 5, the fathers, 11th, Berengarius, 13th, Thomas Aquinas, 16th, Council of Trent, now 20th century, and Saint Pope Paul VI. I had the great privilege, by the way, during the youth synod, I was over there for that, uh, the canonization of Paul VI uh, was a great um, a thrill to be part of. Remember now, we're in the middle of the 20th century, we're actually during Vatican Council II, there was a very prominent theory at the time that was trying to explain the Eucharist in a way that was more accessible to modern people. Theologians began to speak of trans 
signification and transfinalization rather than transubstantiation. And what do I mean? Transignification. The significance of the bread and wine change. So now they come to signify the body and blood of Jesus. Transfinalization means their purpose changes. Their purpose is not now just to nourish the body. Their purpose is to show forth the presence of Jesus. Transfinalization, transsignification. Two very prominent theories in the 1950s and 60s. Paul VI, right during the Vatican Council, said, I got to say something about the Eucharist. And he writes a letter called Mysterium Fidei. Comes out, by the way, in the fall of 1965. So just as the final session of Vatican II is underway, somehow the great Pope of Vatican II felt reaffirming the great teaching of the church on this score was of great importance. Let me give you just one little insight from this letter. Pope Paul talks about the various modes of Christ's presence to the church. So first of all, nodding vigorously toward the conciliar documents themselves, Paul says, quote, Christ is present in his church when she prays, since it is he who prays for us and prays in us and to whom we pray as our God. Beautiful. Whenever we gather to pray, Christ is among us. Christ is present to us. Wherever two or three are gathered in my, in my name, there am I in the midst of them, right? So beautiful. Christ is present to the church when it prays. Secondly, he's present in the church as she performs her works of mercy because it's Christ performing those works through the church. Terrific. When the church does this great work with the poor, it's Christ who's present, Christ who's active. Yes, indeed. More to it, he's present in the church as she preaches since the gospel is preached through the authority of Christ. I used to tell my students at, at Mundelein, the preacher is not someone talking about Christ. That's a teacher, maybe, professor. The preacher is someone who's become so conformed to Christ that Christ can now preach through him. Right, right. Authentic preaching is Christ himself addressing his people. Quoting again, in a manner still more sublime, Christ is present in his church as she offers in his name the sacrifice of the mass and as she administers the sacraments. Right. When the priest baptizes or the minister baptizes, it's Christ who baptizes. When the bishop confirms, it's Christ confirming. The anointing of the sick, it's Christ who heals. Quite right. And, and the mass, the mass, it's Christ acting, Christ speaking, Christ sharing his life. Good. But now listen to Pope Paul. However, there is a still higher, more sublime, and indeed unsurpassable manner in which Christ is present to his church. And this is the Eucharistic presence. Listen now. This presence is called real, right? The real presence by which it is not intended to exclude all other types of presence as if they could not be real too. 
but because it is presence in the fullest sense. That is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ the God-man is wholly and entirely present. Thank you on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Good. Now, think about this for a second, everybody. This is, I think, a very helpful framework. Think of someone maybe who has read an article that I wrote 20 years ago. That person is going to sense my presence, but in a very sort of mitigated way, right? They'll sense something of what I was thinking about 20 years ago. Now think of someone who's listened to an audio of me giving a talk. Well, that's a more intense sense of my presence. Now someone watches a video and they see an image of me as I talk. That's an even more intense. And then there's someone that comes in person and sees me talk. Now they're sensing the real presence of me, right? There I am. Well, so Pope Paul is saying, we have these levels of intensity of Christ's presence. But the unsurpassable one is the Eucharistic presence. Really, truly, and substantially present. Okay, now I'm going to close. But, you know, see, everybody, I, I wanted to lead us, and I hope it wasn't too tedious a journey, but my purpose in that was to show the consistency of this teaching. From John 6 to Paul 6, <laughs> right? From the first century to the 20th century. The consistency of this teaching of the real presence. Okay, how can we begin to make sense of it? And again, I'll keep this brief, I promise. Here's a line from the Council of Trent that I have always loved. How does Christ become really present? How? The answer, the verborum. Trent's Latin for by the power of the words. By the power of the words. Words. They can be descriptive. So someone says to me tomorrow, hey, what was it like at the, at the LA Congress? Oh, it was great. I gave a talk in the arena. There were, you know, I don't know, 5,000 people there and, and this happened, that happened. My words there are just describing reality, right? Reality is out there and it's impressing itself on me and now I'm describing it with my language. However, language can also be active and transformative, right? You're at a baseball game and the runner comes around second base and, and slides headfirst into third and you're in the stands and you go, safe. Well, that's just you expressing your point of view, right? But there's an umpire in front of you on the field, deputized by the National League, who says, you're out. Well, like it or not, that runner is out, right? That language, you're out, was not just expressive or descriptive, it was transformative. It changed reality. Think of a parent who, when you were a little kid, said something that was so encouraging that it changed your whole life, that reached into your heart in such a way that you started living your life differently because of that language. That was not just descriptive language. That was creative and transformative language, right? It changed your being. 
Or flip it around. We've all had this. Someone said something so cruel to you, so hurtful, that it changed you in a negative way for years. Am I right? That's not just descriptive. That's deeply transformative language. Okay. So our little language, our little words, can change reality. They really can. But now think of God's word. Be verborum by the power of the words. How does God make the world in the great symbolic language of the book of Genesis? God makes the world through an act of speech. Let there be light. And there was light. Let the earth come forth and so it happened. Let the, let the land appear and so on and so forth. Let, the, let it teem with living things and so it happened. God's word is not descriptive. It's creative. God speaks the world into being. Now, if you want to get a little more theologically exact about that, it means that God imbues all of things with their intelligible structure. God speaks them into being. How does the prophet Isaiah express this? As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, so my word goes forth from me and does not return in vain. God's word changes, it affects, it makes happen. Now, who's Jesus? How important, everybody, to go back, not to John 6, but John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, the word, the word by which God makes all reality. And that word becomes flesh. Therefore, are we surprised that Jesus' word has a transformative power? How beautiful that story of the little girl get up, the daughter of Jairus, and that they keep the Aramaic of Jesus. I love that because they clearly remembered that so vividly. Talita kumi, talita kumi, little girl get up. And she got up. Why? Why? Because what God says is, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Why? Because what God says is, my son, your sins are forgiven you. How scandalous that was, by the way, right? Who does man think he is? What God says is, pick up your mat and walk. And so it happened. See, everybody, if Jesus is just one spiritual teacher among many, he's one great religious figure, okay, fine, fine. But there's a thousand of those. The claim of the church is he's not just one human figure among many, but is the word made flesh. The very embodiment of God's transformative and creative word. Okay. The night before he dies, that Jesus bread, the Passover bread, and said, this is my body, taking the cup later in the meal. This is the chalice of my blood. If that's a human being, a great hero, a philosopher, a social reformer saying it, you say, all right, great. He's using symbolic talk. But who's saying that? The word made flesh. 
the word whose speech, listen now, constitutes reality at the deepest level. Just as God spoke you into being, so Jesus speaks his presence into being under the appearances of bread and wine. Joseph Ratzinger put it this way, the word seizes the bread and wine at the very root and core of their being and changes them into his body and blood. Here's an interesting moment. Now, priests in the room, um, you know, we can get too routine about the mass sometimes. It's a very interesting thing that happens in the institution narratives. The night before he died, Jesus took bread, etc. right? Notice how we're in the third person. We're describing what happened. But then a transition takes place. Jesus took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, priests now, listen, we move in to his very identity at that point. We now commence to speak in the first person, saying, take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body given for you. We speak in persona Christi. We speak in the very words of Jesus, which is why they have the transformative power that they have. If it's just, you know, I mean, Robert Barron telling the story of Jesus from long ago, who cares? I mean, who cares? But now, speaking the very words of Jesus as someone ordained to operate in persona Christi, that's why the church claims those words have the transformative power that they do. Okay, I'm going to bring it to a close. There's obviously, you know, an infinity more we could say about this great sacrament, the, the, the chief of the sacraments. But maybe I'll give a, a final word to um, a philosopher I don't like, but he said something kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> namely, uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, the founder of modern atheism. But Feuerbach said, you are what you eat. Der Mensch ist was er isst. It's a little pun in German, too. The, the man is what he eats. Well, that's true, isn't it? And the church fathers got this. The church fathers, as I mentioned, got this in their bones. If we are what we eat, then as we eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus, not just vague symbols of our own concoction, if it's only that, to hell with it. But if we eat and drink the very body and blood of Jesus, we become what we eat. We become conform to him. We become Christified. And that's why the doctrine of the real presence matters so much. And why especially people in this room should make it a very high priority to teach it and teach it and teach it to the next generation. Listen, God bless everybody. Thanks for listening today. <laughs>